I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3. Let's first of all start with the word about 2 Thessalonians. This epistle was written by Paul, and it follows the first letter he wrote to them by a very short time, probably around 52 AD or so. It was written to clear up any misconceptions these people might have had regarding the tribulation and the coming of Christ, you know, the rapture and so forth, as a result of reading his first letter. Just as in 1 Thessalonians, we see here in verse 1 of chapter 1 that Paul was accompanied at the time of his writing by Silvanus and Timothy. We know quite a bit about Timothy, and his identity is beyond dispute. However, Bible scholars do disagree regarding the identity of Silvanus here. Most are convinced that Silvanus is Silas, that's the Latin name of uh, Silas, as a Roman citizen, while a few believe this refers to another individual altogether. Well, the fact is, Silas did accompany Paul and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey, and that missionary journey began in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. The mention of Timothy almost certainly identifies Silvanus and Silas to be one and the same. So let's begin reading now with Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy into the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith, and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Paul's thankful here for their faithfulness, especially in the midst of the tribulation that they're enduring. This praise is appropriate. The phrase there in the King James Version is, it is meet. It's appropriate in so much as Paul is complimentary of them in the presence of believers in other churches. Their faithfulness is translated into an abounding love toward one another. Then Paul talks about a day that's coming, beginning in verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul introduces the concept of judgment on the wicked in these verses. Wicked people trouble the righteous. That troubling serves as a manifest token, meaning evidence, a manifest token that they are in Christ. The thought here is compatible with John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. That's where Jesus said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now notice verse 6 in this passage. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Paul specifically tells the Thessalonians here that just as they are being caused tribulation right now, there is a time in the future when God himself will bring tribulation on these wicked people. As a matter of fact, Paul obviously was anticipating this tribulation to begin within the normal span of his lifetime as he particularly references them that trouble you in this verse. That's compatible with his statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, when there he wrote, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Yep, Paul definitely anticipated that the rapture would take place in his lifetime, and that the persecutors of his lifetime would experience the wrath of the tribulation period. However, notice that in his phrase in verse 6, here's what he says, Then that trouble you. Well, that would seem to exempt from the tribulation those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Two observations on verse 6 are worth making here. The rapture is imminent, as in nothing must be prophetically fulfilled before this catching away of believers takes place. And secondly, the tribulation is only for the lost, not for believers. Now, before one can properly place the events of chapter 2, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 1 must be thoroughly understood in light of the event of John's revelation. What is Paul specifically referencing in these verses? Well, let's pay close attention to these verses one more time. In verse 7, the appearance of Jesus Christ from heaven accompanied by his mighty angels. That's the Greek word angelos, means angels or messengers. In verse 8, we find with a flaming fire, Jesus takes vengeance on the living unsaved. In verse 9, we find everlasting destruction, which follows verse 8, and that's for the unsaved as well. And finally, in verse 10, Jesus at that time will be glorified and admired by believers, meaning the saints. Without question, verses 7 through 10 describe the events of the tribulation period, concluding with the Battle of Armageddon found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Verses 7 through 10 do not describe the rapture where the sum total of the event only involves the disappearance of saved or born-again people. That's according to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. In verses 11 and 12, Paul encourages them to make certain that they're part of the believers of verse 10 and not the unsaved of verses 8 and 9. Now, in chapter 2, we'll see a great deal of specificity regarding this seven-year period that's characterized by the vengeance that we see here in the first chapter in verses 8 through 10. That vengeance, by the way, culminates with the Battle of Armageddon. 
The whole period, the whole tribulation period is figuratively referred to as that day in verse 10. That's a common phrase used to describe a period of time characterized by an event, both past and future. And the Old Testament prophets did that as well. Now, we're going to give more attention when we get to chapter 2 on this term, that day. So, hold your questions till we get down there. Now, let's go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, again, let me just point out that you can't understand chapter 2 unless you thoroughly understand the setup. And the setup to this passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So, here's what the people are wanting to know, and here's what Paul's answering in chapter 2. Are we in the tribulation? Verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition." who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, one more understanding is vital here. There is a difference between tribulation and the tribulation. That difference is seen throughout Scripture. The word for tribulation is thlipsis, which is translated trouble or tribulation. It's the word for general trouble in one's life. However, the prophecy regarding Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, well, that describes a seven-year period which is commonly called the tribulation. That's the period described by Paul in this chapter. Whatever misconceptions the Thessalonians may have had regarding where they were in relation to the tribulation, Paul seeks here to clear it right up in chapter 2. You'll recall that Paul assured them that they were not appointed to wrath in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, but from the answers supplied in this epistle, they still seem to be kind of worried about that. Verse 1 frames the concern. What about the coming, the parousia, the Greek word for coming? Oh, and by the way, that's also sometimes rendered presence. So what about the coming of Jesus Christ and what about our gathering together unto him? Well, here's the issue. If they were not appointed to wrath, what's all of this tribulation they're experiencing? What's that all about? Verse 2 helps us understand how this concern escalated. Let's look at it closely. He says, don't be shaken in mind or troubled. Disregard contrary statements that supposedly came through someone's revelation by the Spirit or supposedly 
through someone's word of knowledge, or even supposedly, and by the way, not so, as though it came in the form of a letter purported to be from Paul himself. If you'd like more information on the spiritual gifts, by the way, uh, then take a look at the commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's this erroneous belief that's being propagated that Paul's answering here, and that erroneous belief is that the day of Christ has come. The King James Version says, is at hand. The Greek uh, verb, enistemi, is perfect, active, indicative in form, and should be understood as an action that has been completed. The verb means to come, therefore has come, correctly captures the essence of the false teaching being described in this verse. So these uh, Thessalonians apparently believe that they might be in the tribulation already. Now that false teaching to which these people had been exposed stated that the trouble they were experiencing meant that they were in the midst of the tribulation. Paul's mission is to prove to them that they are not in the tribulation. So Paul lays some heavy-duty prophecy on them regarding the tribulation period and the beast of Revelation chapter 13, who, by the way, people today commonly refer to as the Antichrist. Biblical correctness would require us to refer to this puppet leader of Satan as the beast instead, but popular reference leads us to refer to him as the Antichrist nonetheless. In actuality, the only references to Antichrist in the New Testament are actually found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, 22, chapter 4, verse 3, and 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, just four occurrences. These may be references to the tribulation personality of Revelation 13 called the beast, but that's not at all certain. Now, many have misunderstood the usage of the word day in this and similar passages. I told you we'd come back to this earlier. They only understand the usage of this word in the context of describing a 24-hour period of time. Therefore, it seems to them that the word must describe the day the rapture takes place or the day that Jesus returns to earth. Well, actually, the word day of verse 3 is used figuratively, well, like we use the word ourselves. You know, sometimes we'll say, back in my day or, or it's coming a day. And, you know, you might find it helpful to read the notes on Philippians chapter 1 there regarding the usage of the word day. There's a consistency in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, regarding the usage of this term, day of the Lord. Whether it's talking about the attack of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the beast, the Antichrist, or the tribulation itself, it usually refers to an event or a series of events accompanied by severe judgments upon people. In keeping with the essence of this scriptural usage, Paul's referring to a time, longer, by the way, than 24 hours, with distinct unpleasant characteristics. Specifically, he's talking about the events of the tribulation. So here's what he says about that day, the tribulation period of verse 3. He says, first of all, there'll be a falling away. That's the Greek word apostasia, also translated apostasy in other places. And that apostasy must occur, that falling away. We see that in verse 3. From Revelation chapter 6, this appears to take place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Then we see that the man of sin and the son of perdition, also known as the beast, also known commonly as the Antichrist, that he must be revealed. We see that in verse 3. 
he will insist on being worshipped as God in verse 4. By the way, this coincides with Daniel 9, 27, and also Daniel eleven thirty one, Daniel 12, 11, and again, Matthew twenty four fifteen. That's known as the abomination of desolation. Each of those passages deal with that. We therefore know that this takes place in the middle of the seven-year period of tribulation. That's based primarily on Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We understand that these written comments follow up on specific instructions Paul had giving them regarding this issue when he was with them. We see that in verse 5. The beast, also known as the Antichrist, cannot be revealed until the restrainer, described here as what withholdeth, till the restrainer is removed. The King James Version phrase, only he who now letteth, of verse 7, shouldn't confuse us. It's still a reference to the restrainer or withholder of verse 6. As a matter of fact, those who play tennis know that when one serve grazes the net while landing in play, it's called a let. In 1611, the word let, Greek kateko, was commonly used and properly so to mean to hinder, and still defined that way in the English dictionary as a secondary definition. I, along with most fundamental Bible teachers, believe that the restrainer here in verses 6 and 7 that that restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The presence of God will be removed from the earth when believers are raptured just prior to the tribulation. Now that's because believers are the sum total of the presence of God on this earth, because we are the temples of God, and that's according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And until there are new converts, which, by the way, begin with the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, until there are new converts, the presence of God will have been removed from the earth to leave it wide open for the Antichrist or the beast to gain control. The beast will garner control for the first three and a half years until he feels he has enough clout to proclaim himself God and worthy to be worshipped as such. The beast, also known as the Antichrist, will be destroyed by Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, at the final battle of Armageddon. That's seen here in verse 8. And then we have uh, uh, a troubling notion, and here it is. People who reject Christ's salvation before the rapture will not choose to be saved during the tribulation. Read verses 9 through 12 and see if that's what you don't see as well. Of course, many will be saved during the tribulation, but apparently no one who previously rejected Christ as Savior. That's what these four verses seem to say. What else could Paul mean by these comments? Then he says, uh, hey, don't be confused, beginning in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God even our Father which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation, and good hope through peace. 
comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. In these verses, these five verses, Paul encourages them, well, and us, to rest in the facts of the first 12 verses to recognize that we are to be delivered from these events through the pre-tribulation rapture of believers. In verse 13, he acknowledges their salvation as a community of believers by referring to them as chosen inasmuch as God had directed Paul to take the gospel to them on his second missionary journey. And that's seen in Acts chapter 17. As a result of the sanctification, the Greek word hagiosmos, that means set apart. In addition, as a result of the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, they were saved. Subsequently, verse 14 tells them that they were called to glory, that which is experienced by Jesus Christ himself in heaven. That being the case, they are encouraged to hold the traditions which ye have been taught. That's seen in verse 15. Now, those traditions include not only his personal teaching to them by word, also by letter. Undoubtedly, that's a reference to the guarantee that they were to be delivered from the wrath of 1 Thessalonians 5.9. These comforting words are to be their consolation we see in verses 16 and 17. Now, um, you may be saying, I wish I had a chart to show me all this. Well, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, there's my prophecy timeline chart. I've included it several places in my notes on the uh, New Testament, uh, Old Testament as well. But if you'd like to get some further detail about the timing of all of this, then look at my notes on Jesus' tribulation presentation. Go to the summary on Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 31, paralleled by Mark 13 and Luke 21, and there you'll get an overview of what takes place prophetically in our future. And then in chapter 3, Paul encourages them to pray for us. Pray for him, of course, Paul. Verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So Paul asked that they pray for his ministry on two counts. The first is that the word of the Lord will have free course, in verse 1. In other words, that it will spread rapidly. Uh, the Greek word treko here is used only 20 times in the New Testament. It's always translated run, except here. In the Greek subjunctive mode here, it's really that the word of God may run. In other words, his desire is to see the word exalted just as it is among the Thessalonians. And then he also asked them to pray for his deliverance from unreasonable and wicked men in verse 2. Now, you must agree that Paul encountered more than his share of these unreasonable and wicked men during the course of his ministry. Paul expresses confidence in these Thessalonians and in the Lord in keeping them from evil along with an exhortation to remain patient in the midst of tribulation that they're experiencing. The patient waiting for Christ is a reference to the rapture, the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. Then, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3, 
Paul warns against busybody deadbeats. Verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread." But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now you've heard the verse, Idleness is the devil's workshop. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that's not a verse. That's not a scripture verse. However, that does seem to be the essence of this passage on keeping busy. Everyone is encouraged to work in this passage. He points out that when one has idle time on his hands, he has a tendency to use that time negatively. It seems likely that these verses are intended to put a stop to the bad teaching that Paul's been dealing with in chapters 1 and 2. Consider this scenario. They'd heard that teaching that the persecution and trouble that they were experiencing meant that they were in the tribulation. People with idle time on their hands were spreading the word, the incorrect false word. Now, assuming that to be the case, Paul tells them to avoid those who do not embrace the solid teachings of Paul. He says that in verse 6. He refers to them as busybodies and disorderly in verse 11. They don't work, they meddle instead. Paul offers himself as an example inasmuch as he worked his trade while he was among them, and he offers this rule of thumb designed to put a screeching halt to this idle spreading of bad tales and doctrine. And here it is. If any man would not work, neither should he eat. Incidentally, in verse 9, he remarks that it was not for the lack of power, that's the Greek word exosia, means authority, it wasn't for his lack of power that he chose to work rather than receive their support while he was there. Because of these that were disorderly, he did so as an example. In verse 13, he encourages these Thessalonians to not become discouraged as they strive for excellence in the midst of their difficult times. Now, how are Paul's letters to be viewed? People have often asked me, did, did Paul know he was writing scripture when he wrote his letters? Well, verses 14 and 15 demonstrate that he did indeed know. It says this, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. It count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You can see that Paul was adamant that fellowship with believers should only be maintained with those who embrace the teachings in Paul's own letters. And then in the last three verses, verses 16 through 18, we have the goodbye. Verse 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always. By all means, the Lord be with you all. 
the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We saw in chapter 2 that letters apparently were circulated in Paul's name that were forgeries. Paul didn't write them. Paul points out that while he may have dictated this letter to a secretary, he wrote this salutation without any help from a transcriber. He says, with mine own hand. This token, the Greek word simeon, meaning sign, this token was to validate this letter as being absolutely authentic. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.